Listeners be advised that this podcast contains graphic language about experiences of military life. Don McAllister looks like the kind of guy I'd meet after a bad night at a biker bar at 2 a.m. in the back alley and immediately regret it. Imagine this. Bad biker dude, tons of tattoos, long mohawk hair on top, earrings, and a Viking-like braided beard. He looks like the kind of guy that would kick your teeth in. (laughs) But in reality, Don's the guy that would give you the shirt off his back. He's a retired command sergeant major who spent nearly 25 years in the Army. A lot of that time spent with one of the most prolific divisions, the 82nd. His passion now is helping others reintegrate into, quote, the real world. This is Out of Uniform, a podcast about men and women out of the service and how life in the military shaped who they are now. I'm Tim Kolzak. I'm an Army veteran, and I travel all over talking with other veterans and hearing their stories. I met Donald McAllister on a movie set, and I just so happened to be the -the behind-the-scenes photographer, and Don was there in his first-ever acting role. Even on set, you could see him really bringing order to the chaos, and that makes sense. Because when Don was a leader, he had two goals. Finish the mission and keep his soldiers alive. The only difference between then and now? He didn't care if you liked him then. I learned a lot about leadership from Don when I sat down with him at our Airbnb not far from the film set. And I'll never forget this one from basic training. Well, first off, you know, the drill sergeant called me McAsshole from the (laughs) get-go. Wow. Yeah, because I was was kind of a little smart-ass, you know, uh, but... The night we were doing the night infiltration course, I was I was the squad leader. Mm-hmm. You know, walked through the woods, got to the uh, the berm, and on the backside, you know, they had the little bench and everything where you could sit down and all that crap. And the drill sergeant's like, "Stand by." I was like, "Roger, drill sergeant." And then he left. And it'd been like 15, 20 minutes. He didn't come back. And then all the shooting and everything started, and the explosions. And I was like, "Oh shit, this must be a test." Mm-hmm. So I told the dudes, "Let's go." So we crossed the berm and we 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 did the uh, high crawl, low crawl all the way through. You know them shooting. With back then, you know you're thinking it's three foot over your head, but it's l- literally like eighteen foot over your head. <laughs> exactly. But uh, you get you know I, I'm, we're doing that. I'm all excited and we get to the other end and I'm all proud of myself. Like I took initiative and I did something. Drill sergeant standing there. He's like, "Hey, McCastle." I was like, "Yeah, drill sergeant." He's like, uh, "Hey, uh, stand by." And I was like, "Roger." So I stood there, pray rest. All the dudes got on the bus, and then he's like, hey, uh, as soon as we get back to the Starship, you get off the bus, you come straight to me. So I went straight to him, and I thought he was going to, like, give me kudos and crap for taking the initiative. Yeah. Bad, no, it was not kudos. <laughs> he uh, he hit my ass up for, like, you know, forever, and then he, then he said he was going to teach me a lesson about following instructions and, you know, having some tactical patience. And basically what he did was he had me take every sandbag from the uh, PT track, bring it to back then the hand-to-hand combat pit, and build a bunker. And then I had to take all the sandbags and put them back. What that night taught me was, you know, uh, having, you know, taking initiative is good, 
but also to, sometimes having that, that patience and taking that tactical pause is even a little better. Can you talk a little bit about um, your, your first tour and who that was with? Yeah, so my, my first uh, combat tour uh, was the uh, initial invasion in Iraq in uh, wow. 2003. And we flew into Talil Air Base in Iraq. And then uh, the next day, went into a town called Asamoa. And we're in the biggest firefight that the 82nd Airborne had been in since World War II. Wow. Wow. I will tell you, the night um, we, we got outside of Samoa in our, in our patrol base, and I'll never forget, man, I'm going up there, and I bring my AG with me. We establish our position to bring the guns up, and I was like, what the, what the hell is that noise? And he's like, they're shooting at us, Sergeant. I'd never been shot at, man. <laughs> you know, you heard it on a range and all, but it wasn't the same. Yeah, 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 of course. You, you know what it sounds like now, uh-huh. but you never know that until you hear no, it that first time. When no. you, you hear shooting by you, but when it's actually shooting at you, it's a little different. Oh, yeah, and it's a, it's a strange, like, recognition pattern where you're like, yeah, no, no way anybody would, like, shoot at me. Yeah, because yeah, like, it takes you a minute. How dare to, they? <laughs> yeah, it takes you a minute to be like, wait, are they shooting at me? When you finally get up to Baghdad, what's what's the mood? Well, when we when we got to Baghdad, uh, it had uh, turned into like the Wild West. Really? Um, yeah, yeah, it almost felt like we were kind of like law enforcement slash bounty hunters <laughs> because all the Fed and generals and everybody tried to hide into the populace, and uh, we would get information, and then we nightly we were doing raids. Mm. It was pretty crazy, and then uh, I think we had our first guy. Uh, and the battalion got hit with an IED. I want to say it was in August. Um, it was a guy from our Delta company, and he got killed. We didn't even know what IEDs were. Wow, really? Yeah, and when they started, you know, we'd see some shit, and we'd go pick it up or kick it and be like, what the hell is that, you know? Yeah. What was that, you know, what was that like kind of when that first guy got killed, you know, that realization? Well, uh, it was, uh, you know, it, it just kind of, it threw us for a loop a little bit because everything we had been doing to that point was, getting shot at and shooting back right and you know they were just driving and then they got blown up yeah and then we all know the the history of the ieds after that but yeah they got that was when they first started the improvised explosive device otherwise known as the ied is the infantryman's worst nightmare Although many consider the sniper to be the greatest psychological battle tool, I would personally argue it's the IED. It's the enemy you can't see, the enemy you can't fight against. And Mac was hit by one of these devastating devices in October of 2003. Now back when Mac was over there, these were large explosives that were buried deep under the ground. But by the time I got there a few years later, they were carefully crafted, very insidious devices. Almost everything in our briefings was about the IED. And you were wounded on that first tour, right? Yeah, I got the first tour. I came home on a medevac bird through Germany to oh, Walter wow. Reed. Yeah. How so, that? What? What happened there? Well, I got. Um, you can't just tell me and then not tell well, me the story. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, I mean, I got. I should have zigged when I zagged, and you know all that good shit. But uh, one day, it was October eighth. I had a new PL. He was uh, going to check on some guards we had at the Alrashid Bank and Outdoor Market in Baghdad, well, outside of the market. And uh, we we had two Humvees, no doors, no tops. You know, they were regular truck Humvees. And uh, he was going out and he's like, hey, sorry, Mac, you want to go with me? I was like, yeah, I'll go, sir. And uh, 
me and me and one of my squad leaders had a little uh, uh, a little PlayStation, you know, one of the the unlocked playstations yeah and i'll never forget i had my dynasty at lsu going on ncaa and everything and i paused <laughs> it but yeah i was like yes yeah, sir i'll go out so i went out we went and checked everything was good and then when we were coming back out of the market i told my my uh, team leaders who was riding in the truck with me in the back i was like hey dude jump in the front get some shade i'll jump in the back and pull security mm-hmm. and um coming right out of the market man they hit my Hit my truck with uh, five one five five rounds tied together. Jeez. Um, luckily, they weren't good at IEDs yet, so they had buried them under the asphalt. So the asphalt took, you know, some of the blast. Otherwise, it would have just obliterated the vehicle. Yeah, I, I mean, I remember it like it was yesterday. The actual blast, you know, like because I was on the back of the truck facing out, uh, felt this big just pressure. And then I remember, you know, I took my left hand and I put it on my face and I seen blood all over it. And I was feeling for my weapon because I had it on a D-ring. And then the next thing you know, I'm looking up and, you know, Sergeant Bergner's telling me I'm going to make it. Ironically enough, six months before Donald McAllister was almost killed on that Iraqi street, President George W. Bush gave his now infamous mission accomplished speech. When I pointed that out to Don years later, he laughed and said, maybe for some. Now, I'm not here to talk semantics, but that gives you some insight into the gap between the political understanding of war and the men that are actually there on the ground. At the time of Bush's remarks, sectarian violence had not yet started, and the IED had really just become a thing. What's more sobering is this. The actual invasion of Iraq would come to be considered one of the easier parts of the war. So... You know, you get back from the third deployment, you come home. Yeah. And then how soon after that was the fourth? A year later. A year later. Okay. Yeah. So where were you headed that this time? Our battalion, you know, was still doing advise and assist, but they needed to send one company down to Hellman and Lashkar Gah and Nawa with the Marines and the Brits um, because of the fighting going on down there. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you, man, from, and I did another deployment after that one, but that deployment still haunts me, man. It was, uh, it was truly hell on earth. The place Don's describing is the Argandab River Valley in Afghanistan. It's situated in an area just outside of Kandahar, which is the Taliban's holy city. And the 82nd, particularly Donald McAllister's battalion, was tasked with stopping the flow of contraband through the area. The task ended up being almost insurmountable. The valley was so violent that whole units were stood down and pulled back to in-country because they didn't have enough guys anymore. Don's unit came there to relieve the 4th Infantry Division, or 4th ID, and that division was absolutely decimated. They lost nearly half their people. So Don's crew knew going in that the fighting would be absolutely bloody and brutal. And it was. Uh, I had to find a place to set up a combat outpost, and the the only place I could find was a radish field. Wow. And it had two walls and then two orchards. Mm. And it was just raining nasty. And, uh, yeah, our first 96 hours, man, my guys might have got might have got an hour of sleep a night. Wow. Um, and, and, like, the third or fourth day, they were all feeling sorry for themselves. So, like, 4 o'clock in the morning, I'll never forget, and these guys told the story when we did our— our reunion 
<laughs> I pulled the whole company in because we were all together at that point, and I just went ballistic, you know. And and like I told him, I was like, I was like, nobody cares about your feelings right now. I don't care that you're tired. Bad guy out there don't care that you're tired. But I was like, I tell you what, a month from now, after you've been patrolling your butt off every day, Mm -hmm. you're going to want to have somewhere to come back to and be secure. Yeah. So if we don't build it now, we ain't going to build it. It was crazy, man. And, um, you know, I I took my first casualty the day after Christmas. Um, It was, I had a squad hit. I had one, one kid was KIA and then um, one was an amputee and then, uh, two others were wounded. Wow. Yeah. What's the feeling like that in leadership when that goes down and that happens? It's just, uh, you know, your, your, you know, everything just sinks to the bottom of your stomach. And then being the guy that had to show up on the X and make all the guys that are there calm down and do their freaking jobs. And, and you know, it's not that they weren't, but you know how it is, man. You take casualties. It's mass confusion. Everybody's freaking out. So all I constantly told myself was I got to be the dude that keeps these kids, you know, keeps their head in the game. Right. And, uh, you know, we got the guys evac We had the uh, pararescue guys come in and get them. Yeah. The squad leader that was on the ground, he's he's dead now himself, but uh, I'm looking for him. And I asked his PL, I'm like, where the hell is the squad leader? He's like, well, he's over by a tree first, aren't? And he pointed out where he was at, and I went over there. I looked at him and he was crying. Mm-hmm. Grabbed him by the chin strap and I pulled his helmet to mine and said, "Look, man," I said, I, "I said, there's no time for that right now." Yeah. I said, "I said, your boys are over there. You're gonna get your ass up and you're gonna get them to pull in security and do what the hell they're supposed to do." Mm-hmm. That night when we got them back to the cop, he came and talked to me and he wanted to tell me that he was sorry he let me down. Yeah. And I told him I was like, I was like, don't be sorry for shit, man. I said, all I want to see is that you're going to get out there and do your damn job. Right. It's hard, man. And to be the guy that's out there with them, the old guy that puts a boot in their ass and actually, you know, they think he has no feelings is hard, you know? Yeah. It's probably a lot of what you're doing is having to give guys a wake up call. Yeah. You got to, what I tell guys all the time still is leadership is a lonely place. If you're doing your job, you got to remember if you're doing your job, you're not anybody's friend. Yeah. And that's hard for a lot of guys to fathom. Let me just say here that I believe there's a healthy balance in leadership, and I don't necessarily identify with all the ways that Don led. When I was a team leader in the Army, I was much more loving and hands-on. Sometimes I would bring guys in and ask them about their families, ask how they were doing, and ask for feedback about what I could do better. A real open and honest conversation, but I think I probably have too strong of a desire for people's approval. And to be honest, that can be dangerous in a combat zone. Sometimes you got to send a guy into a room, but instead you're thinking, oh, I don't want to send them in because that might get one of us killed. And there's been plenty of commands that have done that. And in all reality, they lost because we didn't make any movement or more people died because they lost sight of the bigger picture. So I respect Don's leadership style. It's not my way. But I think that he saved a lot of lives. So therefore, it's a good way, right? Because at the end of the day, that's really what you're trying to do is complete the mission. That's number one. In the Army, we understand that we are a tool, a mechanism. And we know death is just a product of war. 
And that knowledge was tested when Don and his men pushed further into the Argandab Valley. We had to we had to control that valley. We had to clear all the villages in it. We started finding IEDs. We were figuring out trip wires through the uh, through um, wheat fields, trip wires in the orchards. Golly. So we had to figure it out as we went. And I had never even heard of a PMN mine, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, explain that for people who don't understand that. Uh, they're basically um, anti personnel mines, and they're designed kind of like it's just a kind of like a toe popper. It's designed to like take off a foot. Okay. Um, but what they did was, because they're so hard, you can't, if there's a PM in mine, you're not going to pick it up with a metal detector. It's all plastic. Mm. Um, and what they would do was they would use those as the initiation device. And they would have a, you know, 10 meter or so uh, deck cord attached to it, to a a big vegetable ghee jug of HME. Oh, wow. Homemade explosives, you know, ammonium, nit- ammonium nitrate. Right. So whoever stepped on the PMM mine was either going to lose their foot, toe, something like that. But then one of the guys behind them, 10 meters back, was going to get killed. Wow. You know, and that's the way they designed it. I'd seen a lot of stuff on all my deployments and a lot of bad crap. But, yeah. you know, there's nothing like just, you know, it seems like every other day, you know, you're evacuating somebody or you're holding their hand, telling them they're going to make it when they're missing limbs. And it haunted us, man. And, it, you know, it still does. But when I was on that deployment, I told myself, after this, I'm not deploying again. Yeah. You know, because I couldn't handle writing letters to moms anymore. And, I, I, you know, I couldn't handle how many times I had just been sitting there with a kid holding his hand, telling him everything's going to be okay when his legs freaking just blown off and there's body parts everywhere. We'll pick up Don McAllister's story with his difficulty becoming a civilian in just a moment. This is Out of Uniform. Stay with us. I'm Carson Frame, Texas Public Radio's military and veterans issues reporter. The face of the American military is changing, and so are the challenges service members confront. We have to make sure that we do trust each other so when the time comes if something catastrophic is going on that you trust your, your neighbor. If there's bias, if there's racism, then it's not going to work. Listen to stories from the American Homefront Project Wednesdays during Morning Edition on TPR. This is Out of Uniform. I'm Tim Kolzak. I think in some ways, retired Command Sergeant Major Donald McAllister is still in the Argandab River Valley. The loss is never lighter. The dread, the pain of going out every single day and knowing that you're going to get your teeth kicked in. Honestly, it's hard to have a conversation with Don that doesn't circle back to his Army career or the Argandab Valley. He spent decades in the service and essentially became a man while he was in. In that time, he saw huge changes in how the Army fights wars. He rose in rank to the point where he was looking after the welfare of an entire battalion. And he became a father. In other words, the Army was the backdrop for his entire adult life up to that point. So even though the Argandop was Don's toughest, most painful deployment, reintegrating back into civilian life proved to be almost as difficult. So what was it like getting out? I mean, you know, you achieved this massive accomplishment, right? Yeah. And you do 25 years? Yeah. 
25 years and then you're done yeah and uh well to tell you the truth at 25 years i really wasn't ready to get out no i mean i you wanted more huh well i mean i made the decision because i broke my neck and had to get a fusion done on my spine oh wow but uh did you break your neck jumping oh <laughs> but i didn't know it until three jumps later oh geez after all i'd been through and all the crap i'd seen my body had finally told me hey dude enough's enough you know enough's enough now i will say i wasn't mentally right for it you yeah. know i mean i i i thought i was good you know i mean the, the argandab was hard um, but like you know it was about a month or two before i was getting out my wife and my best friend cavazos um they uh they basically had to come to jesus meeting with me and told me that i needed to go get help um, both of them told, wow. me, told me I had issues that I wasn't the same dude mm. and I was in a bad place man and I went and I remember and you know and I'm glad I'm able to talk about this now because yeah. it lets guys know that hey dude even dudes like even dudes like old hard ass Sergeant Major Mac you know <laughs> needs help but uh you know it's I'm, massive man it really does help yeah. well I mean I went to see a psychologist I made an appointment and uh luckily she was great yeah but uh I went in there and told her the first words out of my mouth was, there ain't crap wrong with me. You know, my wife and my friends, I'm just stressed out about retiring, you know. Yeah. And uh, and she started talking to me, and you know, they know how to bring things out. And an hour into it, man, I was bawling my eyes out. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm all jacked up, you know. And, um, and I went, and I, you know, I went through therapy. I did... I did stuff that I needed to do to, to work out some of the guilt I had. Yeah. And the anger. Had a lot of anger. And, uh, you know, it kind of took my blinders off because we always tell dudes to suck it up. We always tell dudes to drive on. We right. always tell them, we always tell them, you got to police yourself up. But at the same time, you know, I hadn't really policed myself up. Yeah. You know, I never took time to fix myself. And I, and because of the mission and because of the job, mm -hmm. you don't really think about it, man, because you're so focused on the next operation. Do you remember when Don talked about the necessity of taking a tactical pause where you slow down before a big decision just long enough to weigh out all the factors? This is a vital tenet of leadership, one he learned hard early on in basic training. But where was the tactical pause when Mac left the Army? Where were the programs to help him get used to the civilian world, to settle back in with his family and prepare him for the rest of his life? There was no tactical pause. Thank you for your service, Don. Enjoy your life. So says the Army, and so it is. I know Don would tell you that he still struggles with that. One day you're commanding one of the most premier infantry units in the world, facing violence and death with numbing frequency. Then it's back home, to a place that's unfamiliar. Back to an emotional reality you've learned to avoid. I think that that's where it becomes a real issue is when that attitude of like, suck it up, buttercup, you know, drive on, uh, attack the objective, there's no time to cry. I think where that gets jacked up is when you get back into garrison and we're still talking to guys like that. Yeah. You know, 
like, hey, man, I remember watching, like, a National Geographic special on 10th Group in Afghanistan, and, like, their commander was like, you know, they had a, one of their guys got killed on mission, they all had a toast, and they all, you know, you know, threw their, you know, water bottles up and toasted, yeah. and uh, they were like, all right, mission's, uh, mission's up for tomorrow, go check the board. Yeah. But he said, you know, they said, how, how can you be like that? You guys are, like, cheering, you know, you guys are, like, uh, toasting each other, and you're, you, you know, you're acting good. And he said, uh, he said, there's no time for tears. This is, we're on mission. He goes, but when I get back, I'm going to bawl my eyes out. In order to be the ultimate professional, we have to go out there and do our job. But when we get back, it's okay to admit you have those weaknesses and that you're suffering, that you're hurting. It's not even a weakness. It's it's just having feeling, But you know? It's not a weakness at all. But the other the other side to that is when you get so used to it, you know, you're so used to it and you literally, like, I had forgot how to grieve, man. Yeah. Like I literally had no clue how to grieve anybody. Wow. I mean, and and when you think about it, you know, it's like, what does that even mean? Well, I'm, I, what I'm telling you is like, I didn't know how to grieve. You know, I didn't know how to cry. I never cried. Wow. You know, I, I uh, you know, it's like, uh, was that a callousness that you'd built up? It was more of a, it was more of a defense mechanism, man. Yeah. You know, like because to tell you the truth, what I learned through my therapy is. I wanted myself to feel the pain that the guys that got all jacked up and aren't still here to feel their pain that they they shouldn't have felt, you know. Yeah. And and uh, what, like my psychologist said, is a lot of guys, it's the same way. We don't realize it, but we're doing that. Yeah. Um, we're putting ourselves through this stuff because we have some kind of guilt, even though none of it was our fault. Right. But we rationalize it that way. Yeah. And then you know, and I really kind of. I knew I was jacked up after that when I'd be like sitting in the living room watching TV and the next thing you know, I'm tearing up <laughs> yeah. and I'm literally the guy that people's like, that dude don't even have feelings. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But, but you know, like I, I try to tell guys now, you know, it's, it's okay to grieve, man. It's okay to, you know, face your feelings and face your demons. Yeah. It took more guts to face it than it did to not face it. And for me, all that stuff's really hard. And I was always a leader in combat. So I have a lot of guilt up there and I have a lot of a lot of pain and the guilt being not that anybody did anything wrong the guilt being that I'm still here after all that crap and they're not what we don't teach our soldiers is you know we always teach them battle drills know how to be a rifleman know how to be this know how to be that but when you take into, ta- into account tactical directives, rules of engagement, and everything else, and then all the crap that's got to go through that kid's head before he makes a decision on the ground, and then if he does make a decision on the ground and something bad happens, yeah. even though it's no fault of his, he's got to live with that for the rest of his life. The rest of his life. And what are we? What do we do to help him live with that? Yeah. You know what? It, what happens when that kid gets back from deployment and he decides to get out because that deployment really sucked and everything else? Mm-hmm. We give him an award, shake his hand, give him a high five and say, peace out. Yeah. And then we're worried about feeling Enjoy the your slot. life. Yeah. And then there's another piece to it too that I talked to him about. Imagine you're a sergeant first class and you're three-time combat deployed veteran and your wife cheats on you or something like that. Yeah. And you go out and you you have a few drinks and the next thing you know, you get a DUI. Yeah. What happens? Yeah. You get kicked out. Yep. But what are we doing to make sure you're okay as you're getting kicked out? Yeah. And then he gets out and then what does he do? 
turns to drugs, turns to alcohol, yeah. turns all that crap. Next thing you know, that's one of the guys that offs himself. So what do we do to help those guys also? It's not just the ones that, you know, are having issues from deployment, but it's also yeah. guys that have been deployed and everything else and they got all that and then they have a bad situation. And next thing you know, they made one bad mistake and they're done. Yeah, and I would take it even one step further than that. You got a lot of guys that come into the Army as troubled guys. Yeah. It doesn't mean that because they're loyal and they're great soldiers, it doesn't mean that they're just going to become instantly great human beings. Yeah, they're not. They're not. Yeah. And, and like, punishment is, you know, something that has to happen, but also expecting them to be, like, morally and ethically upright at all times. Hey, man, it ain't happening. Like, I know. I saw it. You know? Yeah. That's so like to not have a cushion there for them when they mess up is like it's crazy. We put these guys through all these situations, but we have no way to make sure that they're squared away for the outside world. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah, we do our little our little uh transition stuff, but it doesn't really do much for you, you know? It's not enough. Yeah. No. So what I'll tell you is and I'm I'm still trying to get good at it and I'm terrible at it. We always tell guys, you know, if you're having issues, man, reach out. Yeah. But if you're not having issues, reach out. Yeah. You know, if you're doing good, man, just reach out to some of your buddies you haven't talked to in a long time because one of them, one of them will tell you, I'm not doing too good, man. Oh, I guarantee if I went into my guys on my unit and Facebook messaged every one of them right now, there would be somebody in that group. Yes. Real jacked up right now. And he's waiting for that. Yeah. Because he's not going to, he's not going to hit you up. Nope. And he's going to look like everything's fine on Facebook, you know, smiling with the family and all, but. You know, they, just like my buddy, you know, um, I hit him up, had him come do a, a Spartan race with me and stuff. And that weekend he was like, man, I'm in a bad place, dude. Yeah. You know, and he's like, he's like, you must be, he's like, I don't know what it was, God or whatever, because I was literally about to do it, man. And then you called, you know, wow. and, but sometimes that's all it takes, yeah. you know, me when I was younger, man, I thought suicide was being a coward. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I thought it was totally being a coward and everything else. And then after I've learned and grown and had so many guys that work for me and guys that have off themselves, what I know is these guys get lost and they they can't find their way back out. Yeah. And then it gets so painful that they make that one rash decision and it's too late. I'm sure there's still a struggle nowadays at times, but what, what, where do you feel your peace from? Where does your peace descend from? Well, I can tell you, uh, for the longest time, I couldn't face some of my troops that were wounded, you know? Mm-hmm. I talked to them on Facebook and stuff like that, but I felt so guilty that I couldn't face them face-to-face. Yeah. What was really hard was um, facing a couple of the, of the families of my guys who were, who were killed, and... Um, and I'll tell you, what really helped me was one of my, my soldiers, he was a great paratrooper and a, just a tough kid. I, I went up to Washington State, and his dad called me and pretty much, you know, he didn't force me to, but he, I, there was no way I could tell him no to go see Joe's grave, you know. And, uh, and he brought, he brought uh, Joe's little sister with him. And what Jeff, wow. did, yeah, and what Jeff did that day, because he was a former uh, soldier himself, you know, a hundred and first guy, is he told me he's like, and he told me he's like, Sergeant Major, it's okay, man. He's like, he died doing what he loved, you know. Mm-hmm. He's like, he only thing he cared about was being a paratrooper and being with you guys, and we all knew what could happen. It's not about blame; it's about remembering and continuing to stay close with the guys who are still here to remember. 
the guys that aren't. Don McAllister is a retired Army Command Sergeant Major. Now, he tries to make people aware of the challenges of mental health and reintegration, and he works with an organization that's very near and dear to us, Heart Support. It's an online mental health community. You can find it at heartsupport.com. You can hear a longer version of this interview and see photographs of Don and other veterans at thevetsproject.com. This podcast is a collaboration of the Veterans Project and Texas Public Radio. Don's episode was produced and edited by our executive producer, Carson Frame, with help from Ben Henry, Adam Kulikov, and Cindy Carpian. Theme music and sound design by Jacob Rosati. TPR's news director is Dan Katz. The president and CEO is Joyce Slocum. I'm Tim Kolzak, an Army combat veteran, and this is Out of Uniform. Thanks for listening. If you or someone you know may be considering suicide, contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or the Crisis Text Line by texting HOME to 741-741.